Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Amen. This is our second lesson on hell is for real. Now we know the story that heaven is for real, right? We know heaven is for real. But for some reason, it seems like this subject, a lot of people want to steer clear from it. But you know what? It's a reality. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Did you know that? Double the time. Matter of fact... More than twice did he talk about hell and heaven. But just a quick review of some of the things we already talked about. In the book of Luke 16, 19-31, Jesus gave us the story of two men that lived and died from different, uh, let's say, backgrounds of life. One was rich and the other one was a beggar. And the beggar's name was Lazarus and the other fellow was a rich man. That's all we know about him. And so he talked about life after death. Now the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad. Well, Jesus came to set them straight so that they could understand that there is life after you die. As a matter of fact, you're living in the land of the dying. When you die, you go to the land of the living and live there forever. So, he talked about two men. One ended up in the place of comfort. The other one in the place of discomfort. Really, that's a polite word. It's a place of agony throughout eternity. Would you say that's a serious subject to discuss with people? I would think so. Right? Okay, number two, we talked about in the book of Isaiah 66, 22 through 24, somewhere around there in that area, where it talks about people will come together from one new moon to another and we're going to worship the Lord together. Isn't that wonderful to hear that we're going to worship the Lord from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath and so on and so forth? But then walk away from that place, there's going to be a looking glass into the earth where they can actually see those, the souls of those that are in that place where the worm dies not and the fire is never quenched. Now that doesn't sound inviting, does it? I believe it will deter any future rebellion against God. But it's in Isaiah, last book, last chapter of the book. Okay, number three, we talked about what Jesus taught. He talked about eternal separation from God and eternal suffering. Where he told us there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and wailing and so on. And where the worm dies not and the fire is never quenched. So he talked about eternal suffering as well. Why am I saying this? Because a lot of people don't believe in eternal suffering. That when you die, you go back to the dust of the earth and you no longer are a being. In other words, you're annihilated. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus taught. Well, anybody here want to question his credentials? Anybody? I don't think so. No. Okay, next we talked about what Paul taught. And who taught Paul the gospel? Yeah, he taught him the gospel and he talked about eternal destruction. It's one thing for something to be destroyed. It's another thing for it to be destroyed eternally, constantly, over and over again. So he talked about eternal destruction. And then in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2, those two verses talk about the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. And one of the principles is eternal judgment. It's the doctrine of eternal judgment. In other words, those that are judged are judged eternally. And if they're sentenced to a lake of fire, they will be there eternally. And finally, we talked about the three M's. Misery, memory, and mourning. And that's what Luke 16, 
the story of the two men that Jesus talked about, the rich man and Lazarus, talk about. Misery. He was in misery and agony and pain. Memory. He remembered the opportunities that he had to stop it from happening. He's going to live with that. will haunt him for the rest of eternity. And then mourning. He was mourning the fact that his five brothers are going to go there too if someone doesn't tell him. He becomes now a fiery evangelist. Wants to reach out. And we know that that couldn't happen because of the dialogue between him and Father Abraham. Now as we continue our study, and I'm really going to ask you to really focus with me and really listen to what I have to say because this can be controversial and some people just, uh, they get really upset when I teach something like this. I don't know why. I'm going to give you line upon line, precept upon precept, but let's, let's go for it. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Let, well, let me a little, little bit of a question and answer period here. Who wrote the book of Acts? Who? Luke did. Luke, the evangelist, wrote the book of Acts. Who wrote the gospel of Luke? <laughs> it's not a trick question. <laughs> Luke, the evangelist, wrote the gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote the book of Acts. So let's just start right there, okay? And I'm saying it for a reason. You'll see in a moment. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, I believe it is. Let's pull them up. This is from the New American Standard Bible. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This is the first message the church has ever heard or preached since the resurrection of Jesus. This is the first message. Peter delivers this message on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem amongst many Jews and some Gentiles. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, oh, that's polite, and put him to death, right? This is Peter preaching. Where do you get this message? From the Holy Spirit or from his interaction with Jesus during those 40 days? Regardless, this is what he preached. But, look at the verse 24. God raised him up again, putting an end to the comforts of death. Wait, wait, let's do that again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the comforts. What does it say? Agony. Of death. So when he raised him from the dead, he put to what did he do? Delivered him from the agony of death. This man delivered over by okay, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So let's just let's just do this. Luke, who wrote his gospel about the rich man Lazarus. Talked about this rich man being in the torments and agony of Hades, correct? Okay. Here, he is quoting what Peter preached. And what Peter preached was that Jesus was raised from the agony of death. That's the resurrection. Let's read on to the next, two verse, next few verses. Verse 27 first. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in 
Abraham's bosom, paradise, and where? Hades, hell. Same word as in Luke. And who wrote Luke? Luke. And who wrote this? Luke. Do you think Luke knows the difference between Hades and Abraham's bosom? It's not a trick question. You think he knows the difference between the two? If he was in Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, do you think it would have been stated that he raised him from the comfort of Abraham's bosom? He raised him because he would not leave or abandon. The word leave means abandon. He wouldn't abandon his soul where? In hell. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. That's his body, in other words, before it decayed. Go on down to the next uh, 29 through 31, I believe it is. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of that patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. So what's he speaking of? The resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in, where? Not Abraham's bosom. Hades. Right? Does Luke know the difference between Abraham's bosom and hell? Okay. Sure he does. His soul was not left or abandoned, is the better word, in hell. Neither did his flesh see corruption. So he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was God bringing him up from hell and his body being changed before it decayed. And when he brought him up from hell, he relieved him or delivered him from the agonies of hell, the torment of hell, and then his body and spirit and soul were reunited. Okay? That is exactly what Luke is expressing. Now, when you share this, for some reason, people find it appalling that Jesus suffered in hell. And I don't know why, when it is clearly stated. Do you think they walked around with a Strong's Concordance and said, did Peter really mean Hades? Let's look up that Greek word and see. Luke knew the difference between Abraham's bosom and hell. He didn't say he was raised up out of the comfort of Abraham's bosom. And why am I saying this? You want to know why? Because, you see, sometimes when you get such criticism from people, people have left the church because I said this. I'm like, do you want to know the truth? Or do you want to believe a lie? I don't get it. Read it over and over again. It says it. It actually says it. Am I making this up? Did I read to you what that word was? Did it say what it is? Do I have to even expound on it? It just says that he was, the resurrection of the Lord is this. His soul was raised from hell, the agony of hell, and his body was raised before it saw decay. Now, doesn't that make sense? Okay, so you got his, his spirit and soul, his soul. When you say soul, it encompasses spirit and soul, unless you want to be specific. In hell, body, no decay. And that was the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the objection. 
they think you don't know this. Well, didn't Jesus say that today you will be with me in paradise? Yeah, he did say that. But let's go back to Luke. See, that's the objection that people have. You do not take a scripture and change the whole meaning of something that God has laid out line upon line and precept upon precept because of one scripture. So I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. But, for example, what happened on the Day of Atonement was a type. It happened every year on the Day of Atonement. Israel's sins were not covered unless the blood was applied to the mercy seat. Is this not true? Right. So, Jesus was going to have to fulfill what the earthly high priest did as the heavenly high priest. Not on earth, though, in the heavenlies. And we'll get to that in a moment. But look at Luke 23, verse 43, and this is Rotherham's translation. Now, this is the King James Version. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Okay? And if you just read it like that, it sounds like today he's going to paradise. Some people have said, well, he went to heaven. His spirit went to heaven. Some people say he went to Abraham's bosom. But that's not what Peter said. Okay, so how do we then process this one verse? Well, if you go to Rotherham's translation, it's in your notes. You can look it for yourself. He was a Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar, and really knew the, the difficulty of trying to put the Greek language into our language and that sort of thing. This is how he states it, and I believe it's accurate. In Luke 23, 43, Rotherham's translation says, Verily I say unto thee this day, Thou with me shalt thou be in paradise. Do you see, there's, in the Greek, there's no punctuation. In the Greek, you don't have any of that going on. It's just based on context. So, how do I know that he wasn't in paradise when he, after he left the cross? I'm going to give you the next verse. Look at the next objection, rather. Look at, uh, and well, no, let's just look at the objection. First of all, you remember when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished? These that argue this point will say, well, see, he said it's finished. Well, what was finished? A thinking person will ask the question, what was finished? Was redemption finished? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Because Paul said, if there's no resurrection, you're yet in your sins. Didn't he say that? Yeah. Right. So let's stop right there. And let me tell you what was finished. The Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled. The law was fulfilled by Jesus. All the prophecies regarding the Messiah, all that he had to go through, all that was pointed out over the ages about the Messiah, it was finished. Including when they tried to give him vinegar in his mouth, it was all finished. Including 30 pieces of silver, it was finished. And so when it was all finished, he gave up the ghost. He's not talking about redemption. And I'm going to show you why. Because you see, Jesus had to fulfill the duties of the high priest. Now, let's look at this verse of scripture here first and, and, and we'll explain. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Who was betrayed and put to death because of our misdeeds and was raised, raised to secure our justification, our acquittal, making our account balance and absolving us from all guilt before God. So he was raised to do what? To secure our justification. Okay, so we can see something here. 
He's raised up, he's going to secure our justification. Now, what he's going to have to do in order to do that is fulfill the duties of the high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. This is clearly stated. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. The Old Testament ending, the New Testament beginning, and this is what Jesus has fulfilled. Before this, he's talking about how the blood of bulls and goats had to be applied to the, to the uh, mercy seat and the vessels of worship in order for them to obtain covering for their sin. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Did you hear that? He was raised up to secure our redemption. Here, or to secure our justification. Here it says, when did he do that? On the cross? No. He shed his blood on the cross. He died a horrible death on the cross, just like many others had. But he did something that no one else could do. He descended into the bowels of the earth, and the fullness of the wrath of God was upon him. See, no one else can do that. And God raised him up on the third day, the first begotten from the dead, and from he's the firstborn of many brethren. He raised him up so that he could then, as the high priest of the new covenant, enter into with his blood the holy of holies and offer his blood not to cover the sin of mankind, but to remit the sin of mankind once and for all. This is what he had to do. No other man can do it. That's why when I hear people say, well, you know, there's many ways you can get to God. Are you kidding me? There isn't any being ever was, ever will be, that could do what Christ did. He was made sin for us. He, being made sin, suffered the wrath of God in the bowels of the earth for us. On the third day, as Isaiah says, he saw the anguish of his soul, the travail of his soul. He raised him up saying, it's satisfied, I'm satisfied by the price he paid. When he raised him up, you had to apply the blood. You have to realize this. The sacrificed animal's blood has to be applied. If the high priest has the blood in a basin and he's there in the outer court and says, not your sins are remitted, your sins are forgiven, your sins are covered, guess what? No, they're not. He had to, on the Day of Atonement, take that blood into the holiest place of all with great precaution because if you went in there improperly, you're doomed. You die. So he follows the program as God told him to, the procedure, and takes that blood into the high court, into the holiest place of all, sprinkles it on the mercy seat and the vessels of worship. He obtains covering for sin for one year. Year after year they have to do this. Year after year. Okay, when Jesus was raised up from the dead, if redemption was complete, then why does it say he had to take his blood to obtain it in the holiest place of all? Now look at John's Gospel, chapter 20 and verse 17. And sometimes this verse is overlooked. Jesus said to her, this is Mary, when she went to him, when he was raised from the dead, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. What does that tell you about the people that say he went straight to heaven? No, he didn't. 
Right there it says he had never ascended to his father yet. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. So Mary, don't touch me. The high priest could not be defiled. You do not touch the high priest. The high priest has to go in there with great precaution. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant and now he is raised from the dead and he has to take his blood into the holy of holies to obtain eternal redemption. Now listen. Someone said, well, the blood was spilled on the earth. How can you possibly get that blood? Did you ever read Ezekiel 37 about the Valley of Bones? How could you get from the dust? Skeletons become alive. Do you think it's hard for God to collect his blood and put it in a basin by the Holy Ghost? The Bible says he offered it by the Spirit. That blood had to be brought into the Holy of Holies to obtain eternal redemption for us. It had to be applied to the mercy seat and the vessels of worship. And once that took place, then he obtained eternal redemption for us. So, if we go back, heaven is a real place. But so is hell. Hell is a real place where we all deserved to go. You realize that? All of us. But because of the grace of God and the work of Jesus, we don't have to go there. But someone went there for us. Now, someone once said, that's just being too mean that Jesus would... Really? Think about it. If you appreciate him dying on the cross for you, that's great. But you do realize many others died on a cross and, and really suffered the same kind of death. But when he became sin, his visage was so marred more than any man, he didn't appear to be human-like. And the Roman lictor saw that and went crazy. And we can only imagine... Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 7, he was raised from the abyss. The abyss is where Satan is going to be locked up for a thousand years. You realize that. I don't think it's a fun place. Why am I saying this? To deepen our appreciation for what he did to keep you and me out of hell. That's the bottom line. I thank God he died on the cross. I really thank him that if that was where I should have been and he took my place as my substitute in that place called hell and he suffered the wrath of God for me and think about this it was less than 72 72 hours it was less than that less than that he did that so that I could be spared an eternity in a lake of fire can we take a moment and just say thank you Jesus I mean does that speak to your heart what's that say to you does it deepen your appreciation? And it doesn't create with you a greater willingness to really serve Him? Okay, look at Hebrews 9 and look at the, these next verses, 22 through 28, and that's from the International Version. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies, notice the copies, talking about the 
earth made holy of holies, the temple with the holy of holies and all that, all its compartments and all its vessels. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once. Everybody say once. Once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is powerful. The, see, the Jewish people, and thank God for, for what they did, and, and, and the understanding that they give us with the old covenant and all, all the sacrifices, they painted a picture for us. The high priest, year after year, once every year on the Day of Atonement, would do this to secure their forgiveness from, of sins once a year. But what does that tell us? The sacrifice is not good enough. The blood of animals is not good enough. Nothing is good enough for us to be free from a, a lake of fire throughout eternity. It was telling us someday someone's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, yes, he's going to die a brutal death. Yes, he's going to have to suffer like no man has ever suffered. Yes, he's going to have to suffer the full wrath of God for a short period of time. And then God would raise him up. And after he raises his, him up, he would then enter to the heavenly, not the copy, but the heavenly holy of holies and take his blood that was shed and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and the vessels of worship and then... Boom, once and for all. That's it. It's done. Sin is done with. It's put away once and for all. Can you say amen? amen. Guess what? If not, he'd have to die every once a year. He'd have to die once a year. Would you want to see that? Well, he's not going to do it. But he'd have to die once a year if that were not true. Well, he did. Now look in the book of... Um, John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, how important is that? See, to the Jewish person, the law was everything. The law came by Moses. Moses was given the law, and they bragged about that. Right. But grace and truth came by Jesus. Jesus brought truth, and Jesus brought grace. Grace saves us by grace are you saved by faith are you saved? grace are you saved through faith right okay so jesus comes and he is the giver of truth so let's look at just a few verses because my point is not truth but grace so grace is not a concept grace i'm sorry truth is not a concept truth is a person jesus now the bible says that in john 14:6 i am the way I am the truth, and I am the life. 
So truth is not a concept. Truth is a being. Truth is a person. He was truth walking on the earth. In John 16, 13, it tells us that when the spirit of truth is come, who guides us into all the truth, speak to us what he hears the Father, show us things to come. So we can see the spirit of God is here to open up the truth to us because he's the spirit of truth. He's the revealer of truth, the revelator. He's going to give us what truth is. He's going to make truth known to us. And so Jesus, who is truth, comes to us. Who are we going to believe? I remember when I was growing up, I first got saved. I went back to my minister and said to my minister, why does the Bible say I must be born again? And I never heard this in 24 years sitting in that pew. You know what he said to me? You can't believe everything in that book. You believe our doctrine. Well, I was like a slap across the face. I said, what? Yeah, yeah. I said, you're telling me to believe our doctrine above what Jesus Christ said? Can't believe anything in that book. Others have told me the same thing. Well, that was my exit right there. You're going to exalt your doctrine above truth? There's no other place to find truth. Do you remember John 17, 17? This is what Jesus said. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Okay. When Pilate questioned him, and Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth, and he said, what is truth? He walked away. If he would have stayed a little longer, Jesus would have said, you're looking at truth. I am the truth. What I'm telling you has no admixture of evil whatsoever in it. What I am telling you is pure, unadulterated, absolute truth. So if you want truth, listen to what I'm saying to you. But he would not listen. So what I'm sharing with you about the sacrifice of our Lord, he is the truth. And it is true he had to sacrifice his life this way in order for us to be delivered and set free from the power of sin and all that goes with it. Now, turn with me to the book of Ephesians and chapter 2 because we want to focus on the grace of God. You talk about the grace of God. I know we hear it's God's unmerited favor. It's God's power of operation. I have another definition of, of uh, grace here. I think that's very appropriate. But let's read these verses first of all. And you have to quicken. The word quicken means may alive. Who were dead. We were dead. In trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we all have our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the, of the mind, and whereby children of wrath even as others. But God, but God, but God. Don't you love that but? Who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Do you see that language? We were dead. He was our substitute. The Father quickened him or made him alive. And when he made him alive, he made us alive. That's why he's called the firstborn from among the dead. With Christ, by grace, are you Save. You know what that means? He didn't have to do it if he didn't want to. He's giving us something that we do not deserve. And what is it? Liberation from the lake of fire. Okay. Even as others, but it says, And he raised us up together and made us sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Oh my goodness. Can you wait for that day? In his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. Okay, so we have this here where we were dead. We were doomed and we were destined to eternal separation from God and suffering agony in agony in a lake of fire. That was our destination. But because of the mercy of God, because of the love of God, he said to his son, I don't want this for my man. He sent him to come to the earth knowing, and Jesus said, oh, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done. Father, your will be done. He knew the agony he would have to go through. He knew the suffering he would have to go through. And even if it were for only, let's just say, 72 hours at the most, it was less than that, that he would have to suffer in the abyss, suffer in this place called Hades or hell, suffer the wrath of God, not the devil tormenting him, but the wrath of God being upon him because someone had to pay the price for our sins. Someone had to pay a ransom. Someone had to sacrifice his blood, the only blood, the innocent blood that would redeem man from his fallen state. And Jesus made a decision that he would do that. And so once the claims of justice were satisfied, he was raised up from the dead, and by the grace of God, everyone who was dead was quickened or made alive with Christ. He was the first begotten, and then the disciples are the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and begotten from, from among the dead. He carried his blood to the high court of heaven, obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay, I want to break this apart. Grace. Look at the definition. The bending down of one who is superior to lift up one who is inferior. The bending down of someone who is superior to lift up someone who is inferior. Now, it's not a hard question to answer. Who was inferior and who was superior? Jesus is superior. We are inferior. He had to come down. Remember Philippians chapter 2 that says, Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who thought not of himself to be wrong to be equal with God, but yet made himself a new reputation, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. He came down to our level. He became what we were so we could become what he is. It took that sacrifice for us to escape the fires of hell where the worm dies not. And he was willing to do it. Okay, so the grace of God is him coming down to raise us up out of our miry clay. I'm telling you right now, there's not a being on the planet that could do that for us. You can't do it for yourself. No one could do it for us. There's no religious idea that could do it, ideology that could do it. There's nothing, no one, no way, no how. We would all suffer in the lake of fire throughout eternity because hell is a real place. But somebody went there as our substitute for us. So we wouldn't have to go there eternally. Look at the next save. Save means to deliver or rescue from destruction. From the penalty, from the power, uh, from the presence, and from the pleasure of sin. All because of the grace of God that saves us from it all. By the grace of God, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Aren't you glad? The power of sin, aren't you glad? Sin has no dominion over us any longer. 
We've been free from all that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the third thing is, we're saved by grace through what? Faith. See, grace saves us, but faith is the vehicle through which we appropriate the grace of God that provides salvation. In other words, I've got a belief. Someone says, I believe in God. He didn't say believe in God. You could believe in God like the devils do and tremble. You've got to believe in God and in the finished work of Jesus Christ in His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and seating at the right hand of the majesty on high as the victor over death, hell, and the grave. That's what we have to believe. And all these that say, oh, we believe that there's many ways that you can get to God if you want judge there is, but there's only one way that you can get to Him for salvation. You see, Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that find it. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads into life and few there be that find it. Because you see, what people are looking for is a road that looks good to them. Well, let me tell you something right now. The road to salvation, the road that gets to the throne of God, the throne of grace, is not a dirt road. It is not a gravel road. It is not a tar and ship road. It's not an asphalt road. It's not a cement road. But it is a blood-paved Road by the blood of the Son of the living God who laid down His life and says, Get on this road with me. It will take you right into the throne of God and you could be saved from the awful fate of eternity in a lake of fire. It's the blood road. That's what it's paved with, the blood of Jesus Christ. So, if we want salvation... I've got to believe in it. Because you see, there's no other way. He's the only way, only truth, and only life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I am the door. You want to enter in? You've got to enter in through me. Can you say amen? amen? Now notice the next one is works. You see, the only way we can escape hell is through saving faith. Faith. Without saving faith, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God, into heaven itself. Without saving faith, you're not going to escape the horrors of hell. People, he, he uses the word works. Why? Because you see the Jews believe in keeping the law. So, works. There's not one thing a man can do to save himself. That includes keeping the law, good works. It means it doesn't matter how much you give, if you join a church, if you perform good deeds. None of this matters. And if you think or if I think that I can do something to earn my way into eternal glory, I want to give you what the Scriptures teach about that because you see it's absolutely erroneous. There's nothing you can do. These people that think they get to heaven by knocking on your door and saying this, that, and the other thing. By the way, they've knocked on my door 30-some years ago. No, 40-some years ago. And now they've not been back. Don't know why. Because I pointed out to them where they were wrong. Actually said, I've got to go to my superiors to answer that one. I said, well, go to your superiors and come back and talk to me. That was 40-some years ago. I still haven't been back to my door. Because you see, it was in their own Bible that they have already messed up. But it was in there and they couldn't answer it. No, there's only one way. Look at this 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If there's anything you and I could do uh, for ourselves to earn salvation, then I can boast. I can boast. Keeping the law. I keep the law. 
doing good deeds. I go to church when I hear people say that. So-and-so should be able to be, make heaven because they were such a good, 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 good person. Good people don't make heaven. Saved people do. Look at these verses. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast, no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not because you teach a Sunday school class. Not because you knock on someone's door. Heaven's gates are not open to any man who thinks he could get there on his own. There is only one way to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's through saving faith. By grace means the sacrifice of Christ. Are you saved, delivered from eternal damnation through faith, which is believing in not just God, but the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary and all that He did to obtain redemption for us, not of works, lest any man should boast. For you are His workmanship. In another translation, you're His masterpiece. You're His masterpiece. In other words, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. That's where it's stated. It says workmanship in the King James, but it's masterpiece in other translations. For we are His workmanship, masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. And so what that means is we've been saved by grace through faith, and then we are to do good works as a result. In other words, when I recognize what He's done for me, then I want to humble myself, I want to serve Him because... If it were not for Him, I'd spend eternity in the lake of fire. How can I not serve Him? We shouldn't have to be prodded to go to church and do something for God. I'm telling you, here's the thing. I shouldn't have to say, worship the Lord this morning. Lift up your hand and worship the Lord this morning. You know what I should say? He suffered for you like you can't even imagine. And that should motivate you to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're His workmanship. You're His work of outstanding artistry, skill, and workmanship. Did you get that? He crafted you in the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I had sinned sick souls. We were lost and dying on our way to eternal damnation and destruction. But when He was raised up and we said yes to Him as our Savior, He saw us and by His blood we became His masterpiece. Can you imagine what you might have looked like on the inside before you came to Christ? How you were dead in sin and trespasses? And He got your sin-sick soul and made you a new creation. He painted you in His blood and stamped you, paid in full. No longer property of the devil, property of Jesus Christ Himself. Part of the family of God. A child of God. 
an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus, made more than a conqueror, victorious with Him over all the powers of darkness. So if you can see this, and I'm going to conclude by this, heaven is a real place, hell is a real place, but we don't have to go there. We can escape it by making Him the Lord of our lives. And to do so requires faith. Faith comes by the Word as we hear what we're being taught here this morning. And every single one of us should be so moved by what you just heard, by what we just heard today. And if you didn't hear it all, let me just give you a brief summary. Okay? Jesus came from heaven to do what us for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The grace of God is this. God's given us something that we don't deserve. He loved us so much, He saw us in our sin-sick state. And what He did was went to a cross where He suffered and died. On that cross, He was made sin for us. Because He was made sin for us, He paid the penalty of sin. He descended into the bowels of the earth, into the deep called the abyss. And on the third day, after satisfying the claims of justice held against mankind, God the Father leaned over the banisters of heaven and said, It is enough. It is enough. I see the travail of His soul. It is enough. For what He did just now, it provides eternity, freedom in eternity from all the powers and effects of sin. The power of sin, the performance of sin, it's all covered. And then he was raised on the third day. And when he was raised on the third day, he carried his blood to the high court of heaven and sprinkled it on the mercy seat and vessels of worship. And there he obtained eternal redemption for us. And all that's left for us to do is let him sit back on the throne and just say, Jesus, come into my heart. It's not your works. It's not your church attendance. It's not how many times you prayed for somebody or did something for somebody. You know, how many of the people that are not saved pray? I prayed. I wasn't saved, but I prayed. It's not praying. It's recognizing what you heard today and just saying, you know what? I owe him my life. I owe him my life. And then 1 John 2, 6 says this. You say you abide in him, then you should walk as he walked. So not only am I saved by grace through faith. I serve because I'm motivated by what He did for me. And no matter what your gifting might be, use it to His honor and glory. Let's all stand together before the Lord.